officially, we don't call it hypochondria anymore. We've gotten away from that language. That's what we used to call it. But now the more fancy diagnostic terms, which you hypochondriacs are going to love to be able to put these into your vocabulary, it's called a somatic symptom disorder or illness anxiety disorder. And some people also call it health anxiety. And what it just means is that you're really preoccupied with any symptoms that you have. You pay a lot of attention to what's wrong with you. You go to the doctor a lot. You can certainly do this to your kids or to your loved ones, your partner. It really is just as any of the anxiety sort of syndromes are, so to speak, it really is an overreaction. Welcome to Fluster Clucks with Lynn Lyons, where we talk about a family's anxiety and other big feelings. Serious stuff without being too serious. I'm your co-host Robin, and I'm Lynn's sister-in-law, and I'm here to ask your questions. And I'm Lynn Lyons. I'm an anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and author, and I've been a therapist for over 30 years. Parenting can be a Fluster Clucks, and I'm here to help you find your way And I'll even tell you what to say. So, Lynn, I want to talk about hypochondria today. And one of the things I think is funny is if family members have nurses or doctors in their family, they probably have the experience of when they're talking to that nurse or doctor relative, sometimes they look at you like, really? That's all that's going on. (laughs) And maybe just by mentioning this story, I don't think that I'm in a true hypochondria camp. Yeah. But it's funny that like if I talk to you because I just was sick and I just had to go to the doctor and everything, but there is something about talking to an anxiety expert relative (laughs) to where you're like, no, 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 no. I really was sick. (laughs) (laughs) So this whole concept of how we think we feel and then how we feel is pretty interesting. Yeah. And then let's throw in a global pandemic Mm -hmm. for a couple of years where everyone's obsessed with symptoms and how they're feeling and how other people are feeling. Are you noticing hypochondria really going at all charges right now? Yeah, I think it's similar to what I saw with anxiety during the pandemic, too, just in general. It was sort of like the cracks became chasms. So if you were a worrier about germs or illness or whatever, this could really throw you over the edge. The other thing, too, so just in your defense, this just even makes it harder for you, is that not only am I somebody who deals with anxiety, but also I am really the person who ignores physical symptoms. Right. Yeah. In not a good way. You wait till you get like really, really sick and then you need an ER visit because you ignore your symptoms. Yeah. Like one time I had a sinus infection and I didn't completely ignore the symptoms, but I took some of my cat's leftover antibiotics. (laughs) So don't admit this publicly. (laughs) It was a long time ago. That's right. You were only in your 40s. Right. I was only in my 40s. And I did consult a doctor friend at a New Year's Eve party about it. He was aghast. But then two days later, I actually was in the hospital. The antibiotics didn't hurt me. It's just the dosage was off. You see, because cats are, you know, little tiny creatures. So (laughs) I had a sinus infection that was so bad that I ended up in the hospital. Mom, if you're listening to this, I know she listens to the podcast. She's just like, Oh my God, Lydia, I can't believe it. Yeah, I mean, she knows. It was terrible. So I have to be careful because whatever the opposite of hypochondria is, that's what I am. And actually, if people listen to our fainting episode, it's an interesting combination. I mean, you're a tough gal. 
you're strong, you're tough, you like wake up at 5am to exercise, (laughs) which I know a lot of people do that, just not in my world. (laughs) (laughs) It's really catastrophic reaction. So you have something small going on and you just catastrophically go, you tell that story and you are dead and buried. You are planning your demise. You're thinking about it. You know, you might get like a little twitch in your eyelid or something and you think you're having a stroke or your stomach is hurting you. And so you have stomach cancer. It really becomes pretty paralyzing because you're very internally focused. You're very concerned about anything that shows up on your body. And then you repeatedly take action to try and reassure yourself. The same concept always. You have some doubt. Here comes the doubt. You catastrophize it. And then you try and create certainty by seeking reassurance, by going to a doctor, by looking things up on WebMD. That's the process that happens. So it's a content-based thing, Mm -hmm. just like all anxieties. So someone who wasn't necessarily worried about their own health or had a catastrophic tendency about their own health then becomes a parent. Yes. Right? And then then that's a very challenging thing to overcome the pattern of catastrophizing your own kid's health, especially when they're infants and they don't communicate. Oh, yeah. You don't know what they're saying. And we didn't read this, but if you read what to expect when you're expecting. <laughs> or even worse, your pregnancy week by week. Right. Which tells you every week what could happen to you. Yeah. You're primed to be a catastrophizer of at least your children's health. Yeah. And so it takes a lot of awareness Mm -hmm. to stay free from that pattern. Right. I think pattern is the important word because we're all going to make mistakes in one direction or the other. There are times when we're going to overreact. We think that there's something wrong and we go and then we're like, oh, it was nothing. And especially when your child is a baby, you don't really know. And so you overreact. And then on the other hand, there are times where we underreact, right? We think, oh, there's nothing wrong. And then we find out two days later that the arm is broken. We're always sort of moving back and forth. When somebody is hypochondriacal, as it used to be called, it's a constant thing. I'm sure that pediatricians' offices just know that these new parents are going to call because it's really overwhelming and really scary. So that falls into really the realm of normal for me. Yeah. My friend Christine and I, we always say like when you're watching a parent with a new baby, a brand new baby, we always say like, just look away, just look away. It's just so hard to watch, right? Because they're so, so anxious. But we totally get that. What you want to pay attention to is if you keep doing that, and if you do that with yourself, that's when it becomes a problem. So it's almost like there's this papal dispensation that happens during those first few months of having a new baby where you're going to be like this, for sure. Right. But do you stay like that? Yeah, but do you stay like that? Now, and let me also say that it certainly can happen that you're really not a nervous person, you're really not a worrier, and then you have a baby and boom, there it is. But what more frequently happens is that, say I'm talking to somebody and they have a nine-year-old or a seven-year-old or a five-year-old or a 12-year-old and they're still doing this, it didn't just show up when they became parents, it was there before. And this is a really family cultural thing that's passed down. It is very frequent that in families, that's the way that you show concern and love is that you express concern over your health. That's the way you show that you care. That's the way that you connect with people. That's the way you get the attention or coddling that you want. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it just becomes almost kind of a way of life. 
And then let's also acknowledge you have that culture or you don't. And then you do have a child who has life-threatening peanut allergies Mm -hmm. or has special needs that make them medically vulnerable to infection. So then there are people who are legitimately carrying the weight of intense what-ifs all the time. Right. I just recorded an upcoming Fluster Clucks in session episode with a mom who's dealing with that exact situation. And it was such an interesting conversation to have with her because she really does have to pay attention in a very life or death kind of way to her child's health. And then there's also this anxiety thing going on. So it can get really tangled up. Yeah. You always say there's a big sweet spot of what's normal or what's considered healthy. Mm -hmm. Tell us the range of what is normal. There's no way that people didn't say like, oh my gosh, I have a sore throat and I think I have COVID. That's been the thing now. Yeah. So how do we check in with ourselves? So a lot of it is dependent upon the amount of time you spend gathering information, assessing yourself, seeking reassurance, going to the doctor. If you are somebody who would say, if you can honestly assess yourself and you say, I think about some sort of physical ailment or I do something about some potential physical ailment, you're doing it once a week. If once a week you're sort of looking something up, if you're calling the doctor, if you look at how often you go to the doctor for your children or for you, if that's happening multiple times a year, and when you go, it's not because you go because your son knocked his front tooth out, or it's not because you go because somebody has strep throat, but you're going many, many times and you are told over and over again that there's not anything significantly wrong, then, as that comedian used to say, there's your sign. So you want to pay attention to how often you're seeking reassurance or looking up things. It turns out fine, right? I mean, that's kind of the way you know that you're a hypochondriac is that it turns out fine. My grandmother is very elderly and does this. It's actually quite sad where we're at with our health care and our elderly care in this country. But my grandmother for a period was addicted to going to the hospital and mm. to the ER and and she would have nothing wrong with her. And we could tell it was that she really needed attention. Mm-hmm. She, she wanted room service and housekeeping. <laughs> it's ultimately <laughs> like what she was seeking. And so we had to work with her to get her to distinguish between extra care we could offer her and medical necessity. Yeah. But the flip side is that I see when new listeners join our Facebook group, I ask them, how did you learn about fluster clucks? An extraordinarily high number of listeners come to us because a pediatrician has recommended Hmm. them to us. I'm hopeful that pediatricians are responding constructively to the mothers and the fathers who are repeatedly coming for non-emergencies and helping them understand there's a lot of anxiety you have about your family's health. Here's this podcast you should listen to. Yeah. Do you hope that's happening too? Or do you think that's happening? Yeah, I do think that's happening. It doesn't totally surprise me because pediatricians are really the sort of gatekeepers for a lot of families. That's the place you go, right? In the anxiety world, when we look at these somatic disorders and things, there are a list of diagnoses that people get from the medical community 
that we in the anxiety community are like, mm-hmm. And I think the medical community knows it also. And they are trying to come up with a way to take these very anxious people and give them something concrete that validates that they don't feel good. What we need to help people with, it's sort of like your grandmother. It's sort of putting the physical symptoms through the emotional translator. What is your body saying? What's the message that you're trying to give? It may be, I'm lonely, or I'm anxious, or I don't know what to do next. This is actually like my family life, so I have a lot to say about this. <laughs> I've instructed my other relatives, who we all support my grandmother, if my grandmother, if we say, how are you? And she says, I am sick, sick, sick. That's code for I'm lonely. Mm. Because when she's actually sick, that's never what she says. And so when I was explaining this to my other relatives, they were like, oh my gosh, I never realized it, but you're right. <laughs> and so when I hear her say, I'm sick, 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 then it's like, let's clear the schedule and have like an hour conversation mm -hmm. about her childhood or about people that she knows or whatever. She's really just seeking connection. Yeah. But she has a script. And I'm sure children create these scripts too. Right. With kids, they have vague somatic complaints, we call it. The younger that you are and the more anxious your parents are and the more they focus on somatic complaints, the more that you are likely to have somatic complaints as it relates to your anxiety. Vague somatic complaints means I don't feel good or I'm tired or something doesn't feel right. And oftentimes people immediately jump to, oh, they must be talking physically, but oftentimes they're talking emotionally. And remember that emotional reactions and responses create physical symptoms. That's not unusual. One of the things that I've done when I talk to school nurses, and I love school nurses, is when they're dealing with kids that have been identified that we know that these are worriers, we know our, these are kids that are frequent flyers that show up a lot. So it's the version of your grandmother going to the emergency room. These are little kids that go into the nurse's office. I want them to go to the nurse and I want them to ask for help, but I want them to walk into the nurse's office and say, my worry is making my tummy hurt. Mm -hmm. Or my worry is making me feel sick so that we're talking about what we need to talk about. I really have to pay attention to hydrating properly. I work out a lot. I talk all the time, as you know. I am pretty active and I don't drink enough water. So I'm constantly thinking about how it is that I am going to hydrate in the best way possible. And I'll tell you, if my water has a little bit of flavor, it's so much easier for me and if I can get those electrolytes, if I can get more bang for my buck, it's just so much better. I have been using liquid IV. I put it into a huge glass. I put it into the refrigerator. It's cold. It's very tasty. I've been putting it in my water bottle when I go to the gym. The packaging is so convenient. I actually look forward to drinking it, which is not something that comes naturally to me. I love the lemon-lime flavor. They've got a sugar-free option that is really great. So I think that if you're somebody like me that has a difficult time getting in the amount of hydration that you need for your body, Liquid IV is a great option. One stick, 16 ounces of water, it hydrates better than water alone. It's got three times the electrolytes of the leading sports drink, and it doesn't have all that sugar. It doesn't have artificial sweeteners. Eight vitamins and nutrients just for your everyday wellness 
It's non-GMO and free from gluten, dairy, and soy. However you hydrate, grab your liquid IV, hydration multiplier, sugar-free in bulk nationwide at Costco, or get 20% off your first order when you go to liquidiv.com and use code FLUSTER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code FLUSTER at liquidiv.com. You know, sometimes people wait until something bad happens to talk to a therapist, but why wait? Therapy can help you shift your perspective, find tools to cope in difficult times, and feel grounded in your personal relationships. So getting started is the important part. Talkspace makes it easy and affordable. With Talkspace, you can sign up online and get a personalized match with a provider that's right for you, typically within 48 hours. It's incredibly convenient to have virtual sessions with your licensed therapist from the comfort of your home, your car, your office. There's no need to commute to appointments and miss time at work or line up childcare in order to attend sessions. It's mental health care made easy. That's right. And it's secure and private. They use the latest end-to-end bank-grade encryption technology to store client information, complying with the latest HIPAA regulations. Remember, Talkspace is affordable and it's in-network with most major insurers. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get $80 off your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster. To match with your licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash Fluster to get $80 off your first month. That's Talkspace.com slash Fluster. Well, now you bring up the key distinction because we were talking about just the pattern of worry about one's health. Mm -hmm. Now we have to talk about the complication of the fact that the worry can create physical symptoms. Yeah. So that's why it gets so tied up. Somebody is a pure hypochondriac, right? They're a pure somatic person. They are having just normal, regular symptoms, not even symptoms related to their anxiety. But like I say, if you have a twitch in your eye or they notice a new freckle on their skin, Or, you know, they wake up in the morning and they think like, oh, I'm not feeling like I felt yesterday. I mean, they really worry about physical symptoms. They're anxious, of course, and they're anxious about their physical symptoms. They could worry that they have gas and they think it's an appendicitis or they have a headache and they're sure that it's a brain tumor. And then you've got that other group. And I think there's a it's a pretty good Venn diagram, I think, of people who are having physical symptoms because of their anxiety or they're just having a little bit of a physical symptom and they get anxious about it, and then that bumps up their physical symptoms. It just becomes this tangle mess of how do I differentiate between what's going on with me emotionally, how is my anxiety taking over, and do I have something that I need to go and get medical attention for? Which is why when we we use the language, when we try and conflate that anxiety is a medical disease, that makes it very confusing. In terms of raising a family and navigating this, I mean, I deal with this on the elderly side. I don't deal with this with my kids, but I'm so lucky I have the resources you've provided me over the years. And I just realized like, man, this is really tough stuff. And I would imagine a lot of parents, they don't really even know how to approach this. Mm -hmm. So by default, it becomes just like a call to a pediatrician. Yeah, I feel like I would like to take some time off and just call and ask questions of people. Like I always, I always want to like do surveys. I want to send out surveys. But I bet if I were to ask a whole group of pediatricians 
or the nurses that are answering the phones and fielding the intakes. Do you know in your practice, probably just family physicians too, not just pediatricians, but do you know in your practice who are the hypochondriacs? Who are the somatic people? They know. They know. My grandmother was a Hall of Famer. She had a hotline, so she had someone, and there were like six other elderly hypochondriacs that she was sort of assigned to because it was really more of like a coddling experience Mm -hmm. they were seeking than an actual appointment with the doctor. Yeah. Once somebody is elderly and they're seeking that coddling experience, right, give them the reassurance they're looking for. Like you say, oh, I recognize that 666 means lonely, lonely, lonely. Right. When you have younger children or when you as a parent are doing this, part of the problem is, is that you, the pattern is that you're consistently seeking reassurance. And remember with reassurance, it's never enough. Say you have a headache and so you make an appointment with your family physician, your nurse practitioner, and they address it and they treat it like it needs to be treated. And they say, you know, this has come up before and it sounds like you've got these stress headaches or this or this. And then a week later, you have another headache and a week later, you have another headache and you keep going back to the person and the person keeps reassuring you. If the headache goes away, I guarantee you there'll be another physical symptom that'll pop up. And what I want people to understand and to recognize in their own pattern is it's the reassurance seeking that is the thing that we need to pay attention to. I've had plenty of situations where I am dealing with a parent who is a hypochondriac, has a somatic issue, and they go and see their doctor all the time. And the doctor says things like, it's always important for you to call me when you're having a symptom. I will always take your concerns seriously. I will always address them and give you the reassurance that you're looking for. And I'm like, ah! you're not helping me here. Right. On their end, that's their responsibility. That's their job to make sure that they rule everything out. So that's the other thing you want to pay attention to. If you're a parent who tends to have this propensity, or if you're noticing that your child has this propensity, you really want to make sure that you don't go on a quest for certainty. If your child has been assessed, if you've done the testing that helps you figure out and that people are saying to you, you know, this is really something that we want to deal with emotionally, or this, this really seems like an anxiety issue. If you continue to go on the quest, if you say, well, I'm going to fire you and I'm going to find somebody else and I'm going to find somebody else and I'm going to find somebody else, you're not doing you or your children any favors. If they're referred to me by their pediatrician or whatever, and they're coming to me because they're having some physical issue, if they continue to go to different types of practitioners to try this, 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 and this. And for a while, I get it because they're just seeking relief. But if they're not doing what I'm telling them to do to deal with the anxiety part of it, they will usually go away. I don't fire people, but I'll usually say it sounds like, you know, you probably want to deal with this in a realm that I'm not going to be able to help you. And then they go away. That's a pattern you want to pay attention to. You just keep seeking, 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 seeking. Well, there are some parents who are not seeking with the physicians, but are seeking from Google. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and not only Google, but they're seeking like with some stuff that is just not helpful. I mean, I had this young woman who had headaches 
And so she says, oh, I found this woman, you know, in a town nearby and she does this treatment that she's been doing for a long time. And she says it's really helpful. And she described it to me. And I was just like, what the heck? They were paying a lot of money. She was selling them hundreds and hundreds of dollars of supplements for her to take. And this was a girl that if we look at, would it be reasonable to think that her headaches were anxiety related? The answer was a thousand percent yes. But she wasn't willing to look at that. And meanwhile, she had people who were just willing to take her money. And I don't think this woman, I don't think this practitioner was like, oh, I'm going to scan this person. I think she really believed in what she was doing. But God, it was just keeping the problem going. Those are just things you want to pay attention to. The other thing, too, is that if you're dealing with somebody in your family who's a hypochondriac, a lot of people like you recognize it. You're like, oh, my gosh, it's harder to recognize it in yourself than it is to recognize in other people for sure. It just seems like when you talk about this woman and her headaches, I always like bringing this up because I just share empathically the annoyance you must feel of the supplements and other things that are promised to address anxiety Yeah, that people spend money on too. Yeah, I try to be very empathic, and I think I am, of people seeking relief. This is part of the culture that I deal with all the time is that people want a quick fix. It might be a pharmaceutical that's prescribed. It might be an essential oil that's prescribed. And I'm not saying that essential oils aren't helpful. I mean, I'm very, very interested in placebos. I'm very interested in placebos. And I think if you talk to any seasoned physician who deals with families on a regular basis, they themselves become the most wonderful kind of placebo because they are offering emotionally what people are looking for, right? So placebo has a negative connotation, but oftentimes when people believe that something will help, it very often helps. And so as a hypochondriac, you go and meet with somebody who offers you this cure or this reassurance or whatever, and that becomes a placebo and you feel better. And that process gets played out over and over and over again. With somebody who's a real chronic worrier, a chronic hypochondriac, the symptoms just jump around. And they are very resistant, ironically, to what people tell them might help. It's interesting. I say this when people are hypochondriacal and they go to a doctor, they live in this duality where they both want to hear that there's something horribly wrong with them and also want the reassurance that there's nothing horribly wrong with them. And oftentimes it's happening at the exact same time, which is kind of interesting. And without being fully versed in the role that anxiety plays in seeking this assurance, mm -hmm. you know, you have a view of this that many people don't because of the lens that you have. But let's get concrete with like helpful strategies. Say you're a parent who's listening to this and you're like, okay, I'm kind of there. This is, she's sort of talking about me. <laughs> what do you do? Well, the first thing you want to do is you want to give yourself a little time in your reactions because we don't want to go to the flip side. People, you don't want to be me. You don't want to take your cat's antibiotics for a sinus infection and almost <laughs> die, right? That's not what I'm advocating. I am fully aware that that is also not a good strategy. But you just want to take a little time because what I see with these families 
is that even when there is something wrong, because kids do get sick and kids do get hurt, the reactions, the responses, the emotional tone of dealing with physical health is often swift and intense and catastrophic. So if you are thinking like, oh, this could be me, one, you might want to talk to your pediatrician. You know, you could say to your pediatrician, do you think I'm one of those people? And I really need an honest answer because I'm trying to work on this and see what they say. And then see if you can just slow it down a little bit because things do happen. My son fell and broke his collarbone when he was about two years old. That's right when you met us, I think. He was around that age. Mm -hmm. So he fell. I wasn't home. He took a little fell off the steps. So that was in the afternoon and he was sort of sad. And so that next morning, he didn't seem himself. And he was saying, you know, it hurts, it hurts. And so I talked to my friend who was a nurse and I said, I'm not sure what to do. Like he's saying it, it hurts. She said, poke the collarbone that's not hurt and then gently poke the collarbone that is hurt and see what his response is. And so I did that and I was like, okay, we're going to the hospital. But that was just such a helpful piece of advice of how to assess And so I just had to slow down. We waited a little while. He was fine, like in terms of he was eating and all that kind of stuff. But just slow it down a little bit. Just slow it down. And remember that you will go catastrophically to the worst case scenario. So even if there is something wrong, you can go and you can get help with it. But just make sure that you're slowing it down enough so that you're not projecting the fear and the panic onto your child. One of the things that I talked about with the woman in the Fluster Clucks episode is the difference between panic and problem solving. How do we manage this in problem solving and how do we take the panic out of it? Because that's what drives the overreaction. That's what drives the fear. And that's what your kids pick up on. Hi there, I'm Andrea Owen, self-help author with 19 translations of my books, global keynote speaker, and life coach. My podcast, Make Some Noise, has been serving up self-help in a simple-to-digest way for the last decade. The topics brought in each episode are practical and easy to implement around topics such as working through fears that keep you stuck, different modalities of therapy, managing your negative self-talk, and more. We bring you guest experts, solo episodes, and I even coach listeners on the air around relatable struggles. I also do my best to weave my sense of humor into some heavy topics because let's face it, life can be pretty hard and it's so much better when we can have some fun while walking through our challenges. Whether you're seasoned in personal development or just starting out, Make Some Noise podcast will help you become the best version of yourself, the person you're proud of when you look in the mirror and show up in your life. Simply search Make Some Noise with Andrea Owen wherever you listen to your podcasts. No one told us the truth about parenthood. Why? This is the podcast everyone needed before they had kids because now that those little ones are here, whew, there is a lot to unpack. I'm Rachel Shepardota, and I am your host for the podcast, No One Told Us, where we tell the truth about parenting and let you in on all the stuff you really should have known about before having kids. I am the founder of Hey Sleepy Baby, but this podcast is so much more than sleep. We'll be diving into all the topics that you really care about and need to know while you do your best job raising those adorable, tidy humans. Our goal is to just make you feel less alone and less overwhelmed. There are so many things that no one tells us before becoming a parent, and 
I think that we should really pull back the curtain on becoming a first-time or second-time mom or dad to share the good, the bad, and the ugly. We'll have a little education, a little fun, and a whole lot of heart that goes into each and every episode. So join me and our amazing guests each week to hear us talk about what no one told us. And sometimes problem-solving can't even do anything either. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have to just sit on your hands. Yeah, You have to make the conscious choice not to ruminate. Waiting for that kind of information, very, very tough to do, but you got to do it. Yeah. The other thing too is I've worked with families whose children have had cancer, whose children have had very severe issues, who needed heart surgery. And it is pretty amazing the strength of parents to be there for their kids while they're going through that is just unbelievable. The problem solving that happens, the way that when kids are really sick or when, you know, your partner's really sick, just want to say that in the situation when we're dealing with something severe like that, it is astounding to me the strength that parents find when there's something really going on. The issue is when there's not something really going on, you're not in problem solving, right? You're just spinning your wheels when there's something really happening. Boy, parents are just unbelievable. I really am astounded by what they can do. So that's how we should be working on ourselves. What if we notice our kids starting to talk about how they're feeling and we're sensing that there is a pattern, something else might be going on, but they're really complaining about their health? How do we have good conversations with them to help them find the right language or awareness so that they're communicating about, I actually just feel kind of lonely or I really need some affection? Mm-hmm. Or is that too much to ask? Well, no. I mean, it's that's why the littler you are, the more somatic you are, because you're having a hard time identifying what's going on emotionally. And so you put it into the context of physical things, just like your grandmother does. So that's not too much to ask. It just means that it's over a period of time that you're training kids. So you're giving them that language. Say you have a child and you notice that they're really complaining a lot or talking a lot about what's physically wrong with them. It's really great to have a conversation with them about how the mind and the body are connected. And you can even say to them, you know, I've noticed that when we're in this situation, or I've noticed that when this is going on, you often talk about your tummy, or I've noticed that you often talk about what's wrong with your arm or your leg. And it's funny, you can say to them, it's funny how sometimes we can talk about our bodies, but we really can't talk about the way we're feeling. And you might even say to them, there's a lot of language that we use, isn't there, that sort of combines those two things. Like we talk about somebody being a pain in the neck, or we talk about somebody having a broken heart. We use a lot of that language because our minds and our emotions and our bodies are so connected. And it's even okay to talk to them about, I'm hearing you have these really big reactions. This hurt me that you're talking about. Can we put it through the little emotional translator? And can you tell me about maybe how you feel? Can we use some of those emotional words to see if we can help figure out what's going on? So that's one way that you can talk about it. Psychoeducation about how anxiety impacts the body is really, really helpful. Because when kids know that these symptoms are common and that they show up, then that takes the mystery out of it. The other thing you want to pay attention to and that you can talk to your kids is, do they react to small injuries or small illnesses in a very big way? 
So they get very catastrophic about it. That's something you want to talk about directly too. You want to say, it seems that sometimes your reaction is huge, even though the bump is small. And you can say to them, and there are some people where the bump is huge and the reaction is tiny. And that's so interesting, isn't it? You sort of talk to them about the variability in that. And how can we work to make sure that our reaction or what we need is a little bit more in keeping with the bump? And again, I'm a terrible example of going too far in the other direction. It's figuring out how much attention or how much do I need to address this? I think you also want to pay attention to kids who are talking about physical symptoms and it may be, you know, their knee hurts or their leg hurts or their foot hurts and there's something big going on in their life. The parents are going through a divorce or their dog has cancer and is not going to last much longer or they're changing to a new school or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And teach them this connection between their mind and their body so they feel like they can talk about what's going on inside of them. Just like your grandmother, Robin, she finds it easier to say I'm sick than to say I'm lonely. So you had to figure that out. It's the same with kids. I just want to add, you make a very key point of your parenting education and kids' education is everyone should understand how anxiety works and how it does create those physical responses. Mm -hmm. So you have videos actually on your website that explain that. And that's also part of the course on managing anxiety in your kids. Right. There's a special video for kids to watch. So giving them that education of their amygdala mm -hmm. and being able to talk about that, it's an essential ingredient to the right toolkit. Yep, absolutely. Because we want to demystify it. We just want to demystify it. And there is something called anxiety sensitivity which refers to an overreaction to normal anxious symptoms. You know, your heart is pounding because you're nervous. You freak out about your heart pounding. You think you're having a heart attack when it really is just a normal physical symptom that happens when your amygdala gets a little fired up and you get some adrenaline into your system. So that kind of education and that kind of information is really, really helpful for sure. It comes up a lot with kids and their tummies because we know anxiety wreaks havoc with your GI system. That is a really important thing to talk to kids about and adults too. What is the connection between the way that our physical digestive system responds to emotional stuff? And again, there's another one of those phrases, right? You get butterflies in your tummy. Really giving kids information about that is super, super helpful. I say this a lot. I don't know why I continue to be surprised by it, but I am that people really don't know a lot about how this thing impacts their body. I'm talking to people about things that I'm sure that they know. Like I even feel self-conscious sometimes when I'm giving presentations and I'm like, all right, well, you probably already know this, but let me say it anyway. And most of the people are like, oh no, I never heard that. It really is such good information for everybody to have about the connection between their mind and their body. Well, I think it's also so important too, because I actually, I didn't know this stuff and I learned it from you. And then I taught it to my grandmother who, you know, it's she's not a four-year-old, but she kind of was, right, in terms of understanding this information. Why you have to incorporate it into your conversations is because you don't want to make them, your kids or your whomever, feel like you don't believe that they're having the symptoms. Right. And that's a, an important step, too. I validate and understand that you don't feel right, mm -hmm. but we're going to talk about why. 
just with my grandmother, and I'm sure this would apply with other younger kids too. If you say, I think that this is anxiety based, they will hear, you think I'm making this up. Right. And it's like, no, there's a huge distinction. I don't think you're making this up. I know that you feel these physical symptoms of dizziness and stomach aches and all of these things, but that still doesn't mean that it can't come from anxiety. It was a big breakthrough for her and me. Yeah. Well, it's very validating. And that's kind of the hump that we have to get over a lot of the time is for people to recognize that the physical symptoms that they're having are real. And then when they go to the doctor and they get the tests and they do this, the doctor says, well, there's nothing wrong with you. That's the way they hear it. There's nothing wrong with you. So of course, then the next conclusion that they come to is, oh, you think I'm faking. Right. And that's a very counterproductive path to go on. Yep. Yep. Instead of saying, oh, there's nothing wrong with you, you want to say, let's just recognize how incredibly powerful your brain is. I mean, when I hurt my back in September, I was just telling somebody this the other day, actually, we we're talking about a physical symptom. She had this really interesting physical manifestation of her anxiety. So I told her I hurt my back. I started freaking out about it because I had a ton of travel and I kept saying, I have to get through October. I have to get through October. And then I hurt my back. So I couldn't freaking move. And long story short, I end up going to see a physical therapist. My husband drives me to the appointment. I get out of the car like a 92-year-old lady who has osteoarthritis. I mean, I'm just like moving so gingerly. I go into my appointment. She examines me. She does all these tests. And she says to me, okay, so there's no disc involvement. This is a muscular thing. As soon as she said that, I was like, yeehaw. And I walked home from that appointment because it's a mile and a half from my house. I called you on the phone, remember? I do. Yeah. And I was like, woohoo-hoo. I crawled out of the car and I trotted home. It was an hour. It was so interesting to me because I'm observing this as it's happening to me. And I'm like, yep. And that's what my body was doing. I was so panicked that all the muscles around my back were just seizing up. And as soon as she said, you're going to be fine. There's no dicks involvement. Woohoo. Off to the races. Yeah. I wasn't completely better the next day. It took me a few weeks. I had to do exercises and things, but totally fine now. I remember the phone call well, and I was so concerned for you. It's fascinating to think about the concept of anxiety-fueled pain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That is a topic for another episode because the relationship between anxiety and pain is so fascinating. If I were to sort of, I don't know, decide to get my PhD in something else, I would look at pain. So, so fascinating. It's a huge, huge issue. So we should talk about that some more sometime. Yeah. In your free time, you could become an anxiety and pain management specialist. Yeah. They do connect a lot. And I've learned a ton about pain because I specialize in anxiety, but it is so, so fascinating. You are not allowed to have any other back issues before okay. our April retreat okay. because we're going to celebrate uh, winter's departure and come together in Vermont in what I think is truly one of the most beautiful towns in New England. I love Woodstock. Yeah. So join us. We'd love to have you. You can bring your team. You can come by yourself. You could come with a friend. We're just really going to focus on the skills, really, that we want parents to be able to share with their teens, because this has been a tricky time. The world continues to be wackadoodle-doo. And we want these teens to feel equipped as they move out into the world. And we want you as parents to feel equipped to help them. That's right. It's April 9th. It's a full day of programming on a Saturday. 
we recommend that you stay in the area, you know, at the Woodstock Inn or somewhere in the area on Friday night, just so that you can join us bright and early. We've got incredible food and snacks planned, and the program's really designed for both the parents and for the teens who are going to be in attendance. So join the Facebook group so that you can ask Lynn your question on an upcoming episode. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Fluster Clucks. Bye, Robin. Bye, Lynn. I'm Margaret. And I'm Amy. And together we host the podcast, What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. Margaret, I would say you're sort of a where are my keys kind of mom. Correct. Sometimes a where are my kids kind of mom. (laughs) Well, you're Amy more of a we were supposed to leave 35 seconds ago, mom. I mean, touche. In each episode of What Fresh Hell, we come at a topic from our usually completely opposite perspectives. I bring the research. And I bring kind of the gimlet eye. Like, is that research really going to work, people? And almost 10 million downloads later, we're still laughing. We also talk to experts in the parenting field, plus parents with stories we can all learn from. We make each other laugh, we challenge each other's assumptions, and we have what we think is the best parenting community on the internet. Check out What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood wherever you listen to podcasts.